Hello, I'm Hank Belfield, pastor of Providence Presbyterian Church in Chilhowee, Virginia. And I'm Jay Bennett, pastor at Neon Reformed Presbyterian Church in Neon, Kentucky. And I'm Corey Page, a student in Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And, and we're, we're the Geneva, Geneva Mountain Boys. Boys. We want to welcome you to this next podcast of the Geneva Mountain Boys as we make our way through the Apostles' Creed. Uh, thus far, we've covered I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord. Today, we want to move on to the next section, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. I think at the outset, it's important for us to see here that the last portion of the Apostles' Creed that we considered had an emphasis upon the divinity of Christ, that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son and our Lord. And now we are moving on to the other dimension, the humanity of Christ. But even within this statement, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, we see hints of uh, a reminder of the divinity as well. Um, in one sense, you could even argue that the first portion of this, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, emphasizes that divine nature, and born of the Virgin Mary uh, emphasizes the human nature, though to be sure, the entirety of what we've just read focuses on that human nature as well. My point here is that you do see uh, the intertwining of these two concepts and how important it is for Christians if they are to maintain orthodoxy into upholding um, the true divinity and the true humanity of Jesus Christ. But our emphasis today is going to be on the humanity. So let's uh, open up uh, this discussion today, gentlemen, and let's talk a little bit about this portion of the Apostles' Creed. What is significant about this statement, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary? What scripture uh, is this alluding to, and why is this an important aspect of true Christian orthodoxy? I um, One thing I, I think that's uh, uh, so important to recognize at this stage of what the creed says um, is, is that Christianity is an historical religion. Hmm. Um, not meaning that it's historical in the sense that there have been Christians around historically, but that Christianity is belief in a set of historical events, a set of historical facts. Mm. Um, you know, the, the oftentimes those uh, who would um, oppose any sort of religious uh, perspective whatsoever would kind of paint religion as kind of pie in the sky, uh, myths, maybe, um, uh, you know, a way to resolve uh, emotional issues, emotional problems, uh, um, those sorts of things, you know, so, uh, and think about them like, um, think about religion like it's just a set of philosophical axioms or something that you cling to mm-hmm. uh, and this sort of thing. But as Christians, uh, that that's not, the for Christians, that's not the case at all. The Christian religion is is fundamentally a set of historical facts. Now, the creed at this point has already mentioned one of those historical facts, that, and it's that um, God is the maker of heaven and earth. Now, that's a reference to the creation event, yep. 
But of course, uh, none of us were there to see that. Uh, so um, uh, that in and of itself, uh, while a historical fact, uh, it, it's the beginning of history. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, but when we get to this part, that, that the Son of God was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, it's at this stage in the creed that we have our first reference to a, a human being mm -hmm. who was an historical person, and her name was Mary. Um, this person who lived 2,000 years ago and conceived a child, an actual child that was born, and people saw him, and he was walking around in the world. Um, you know, and so we see the historical nature, I think, of Christianity at this point. And the focus of the creed from this point forward, uh, when it, in talking about uh, the work of the Son of God, uh, the second person of the Trinity, mm -hmm. will be historical in nature. It's going to mm -hmm. talk about all the things that happened to him in his life. And this is, of course, the, his beginning as a human, as a human being. So this, this section of, of, of the Apostles' Creed, of course, is all about what theologians call the incarnation. Mm -hmm. The incarnation and the incarnation that that word simply means enfleshment, mm -hmm. and it's coming. That word is coming uh, particularly from the writings of the apostle John. Uh, you see it in John uh, chapter one, uh, chapter one of his gospel, uh, in the prologue there, verses one through eighteen. Uh, John says in verse fourteen, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glorious of the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so when John says he, the word became flesh, um, that, that idea of becoming flesh, enfleshment, that's, that's, what, uh, that's what's meant by the word incarnation. You see it as well later in his uh, epistles. And John, in his epistles, uh, of course, is uh, not presenting necessarily a positive case for the incarnation of Jesus, although some of that's there, but he's, he is um, defending, as it were, the apostolic faith. He is, uh, his uh, epistles are very apologetic in nature. And um, he says in 1 John chapter 4, 2 through 3, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh so again, there's enfleshment, there's incarnation, that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard, which was coming, and now is in the world already. Hmm. And then also 2 John 1, 7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. So there again is enfleshment, incarnation. Such a one is the deceiver uh, and the Antichrist. So this is, these are, the I think, the key passages uh, by which we um, derive the term incarnation. Now, there are, there are certainly more passages involved uh, in, in um, uh, describing the event itself, and we find those in, Math, in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, and, and they're a little more historical in character, um, you know, talking about exactly what happened leading up to Jesus uh, incarnation, whereas John is is presenting the information from more of a theological perspective, um, um, but, um, but yeah, so th those are I think some key passages um, for this particular section of the creed. The creed's actually um, uh, 
quoting uh, Matthew's account of the incarnation as well as Luke's uh, account of the incarnation when it talks about Jesus being conceived by the Holy Spirit. That's coming from Matthew and from Luke. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, of course, the virginity of Mary is coming, particularly from Luke. Mm -hmm. so, well, and I think it's important because I, I think what you said about the historicity aspect of this is very good to bear in mind. We, we've talked about in a, in a prior podcast how the, the creed could be broken down. The most obvious breakdown of the creed is the three persons of the Trinity, Father, mm -hmm. Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, that's what we most uh, easily recognize. But there's also the breakdown of past, present, and future. Right. Um, so there's a time element involved here. Um, you, you, you do see here this intersection between uh, each member of the Holy Trinity uh, with the physical realm. There's an intersection between um, the spiritual and the physical. The Father, it's the making of all things, heaven and earth. With the Son, it's the incarnation mm -hmm. coming in uh, to this world uh, and being born of the Virgin Mary. But um, there's also here, I, I think, needs to be borne in mind, and you alluded to it at the end of your comment there, Jay, uh, that this, this has something to say about prophecy, doesn't it? Um, and, and, and God's mm -hmm. faithfulness in the midst mm -hmm. of that. Um, when you think about Matthew's account, uh, and some of this language is derived directly from Matthew and Luke, uh, Matthew quotes from the Old Testament. He mm -hmm. quotes from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, um, the sign that's, that's given by the prophet to the, the king of Judah, uh, that the virgin will conceive and bear a son and you will call his name Emmanuel. Um, and in that context, it had to do with the reassurance uh, to the king that uh, the political enemies to the north uh, that were arraying themselves against the south would not be successful in their attempts to compel the king to do something he didn't want to do. But in the, the course of time and, and space being unfolded in God's providential plan of redemption, we see that it ultimately finds its fulfillment in the coming of the second person of the Holy Trinity into this world. Mm. So I think that's very important for us to bear in mind just at the outset that this is an affirmation that Christianity is not a fairy tale. It's not <clears throat> mythology. It's it's emphasizing historical events. Mm -hmm. um, well, even when we get into the next part of the creed, when it talks about uh, suffering under Pontius Pilate, you know, yeah. still putting it in, in yep. time and space. And Historical figures. Exactly. That, uh, and someone like Pilate, I mean, with Mary, you know, someone could go, yeah, well, Mary's made up. She really didn't exist. You can't do that with Pilate. <laughs> yeah, we have. I mean, I guess you could, but you'd, you'd, have, you'd fly against, you know. A lot of archaeological. All the archaeological and historical evidence. evidence. I mean, mm -hmm. Pilate was obviously an historical figure. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, Christianity is an historical religion. Um, it's also interesting, I didn't think about this as we were talking about things earlier, it's interesting that at this point is when the Holy Spirit is introduced. So we've already been introduced to the Father, mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. first part of the Creed. Mm -hmm. We've been introduced to the Son, I believe, in the Lord Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. His only Son, our Lord. Um, so here we're introduced to the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, I wonder if the framers of the Creed, and of course there wasn't, there wasn't a a council that framed it, but it kind of came together organically over time. But I wonder if the early church, as they thought about this um, creedal statement, 
weren't thinking in terms of the fact that the incarnation is the first clear, I don't mean the first shadowy or mm. typological revelation, but the first clear revelation of the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. Mm. Um, the doctrine of the Holy Trinity is revealed clearly and fully in the coming of Christ. And so this is the stage at which you find the Trinitarian aspect of the creed um, being introduced, mm -hmm. really, because uh, we've again we've 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 heard of the we've heard about the Father at the very first part of the creed. Now we've heard about His Son, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. There's a third person, the Trinity. So in the Incarnation, you have the revelation of the Trinity. Yeah, and and we get into more detail about the, the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. in the final main section but mm -hmm. you're right i mean there I, I think it's a reminder to us that these things while we talk about them in a theological way in separate categories they all belong together it's, right. it's, it's hard to talk about one i think one of you mentioned that yeah, when mentioned we talk about before. the father how, the, the moment you say the father you presume son you, you, yeah. you it implies that there's got to be at least a son that's right mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> there may be more than one son hypothetically mm -hmm. speaking but you, you you can't be a father without a child. Right. So you, you get into this whole issue that you can't really meaningfully talk about one person of the Trinity without it some me in some measure or, or reference making reference to the, to the others mm -hmm. because they're so uh, connected mm -hmm. to, to one another, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But let's, let's, let's go deeper into this whole importance of incarnation. So what we're saying here um, is that the second person of the Holy Trinity, the Son of God, became man. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty deep uh, concept, mm -hmm. probably far deeper than we can unpack here. And I, I think that we have to bear in mind at the outset that there comes a limit, just like the Trinity itself, there comes a limit to our understanding of these things. We have to acknowledge our creatureliness, mm. that there's a a sense and a level at which God has revealed these things and we accept them, though we don't fully comprehend them, at least logically speaking. Um, but why, why is it so important that we as Christians affirm the full divinity of Christ and the full humanity of Christ? Why is this portion um, affirming the incarnation so vital to... Um, to our belief mm. All right, well uh, first reason is because this is what God has revealed to us uh, about his actions uh, in his world in the world that he created about who he is and what he's done and the incarnation of Christ is the center of the Christian religion I mean there there is no Christianity apart from uh, the Son of God becoming a human being becoming mm. a man becoming one of us um, and, and there's been many heresies trying to deny his, his humanity, but it's essential in our, our redemption. Right, that's right. Without his humanity, we'd be toast. <laughs> yeah, and, and his deity on both sides of the right. equation. You know, one of the great struggles of the early church was trying to reconcile, you know, how, how um, it could be true that the Son of God, who's fully divine, was simultaneously fully human. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, the the uh, the historic Orthodox doctrine that came out of that is called the hypostatic union, uh, because of the the uh, Greek word hypostases, um, 
which is uh, uh, which means person. So the idea there is that there's a personal union um, that the the humanity, the nature, the human nature, uh, and the divine nature, the deity, uh, are united together in the one person, the second person of the Trinity, uh, the Son of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, so the incarnation is extremely important, but it's not just important because this is what God did, but it's in, and, and this is who Jesus was, Jesus' personhood. Um, but it's also important with regard to Jesus' work. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I'm getting at in this question. Yeah, is, right. you know, why, why, redemptively speaking, why is this so vital? Yeah. Um, and you know our our catechism actually uh, gets in gets into that uh, larger catechism. I forget the numbers. Thirty eight and thirty nine. There you go. Yeah, it, it's it's beautiful. It lays out why did, why was it necessary that Jesus be man uh, or be God? Why was it necessary that Jesus be man? And then ask the question: Why was it necessary that he be God and man united in one person? Yeah. So I think it'd be good to just read those at this point. And well, I've got it right here. Awesome. So let me just go ahead and read it. It's, it's questions thirty eight, thirty nine, and forty of the larger catechism of the Westminster Standards. Question 38, why was it requisite that the mediator should be God? It was requisite that the mediator should be God, that he might sustain and keep the human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God Mm. and the power of death, give worth and efficacy to his sufferings, obedience, and intercession, and to satisfy God's justice, procure his favor, purchase a peculiar people, give his spirit to them, conquer all their enemies, and bring them to everlasting salvation. Um, but before you read 39, there's just a, a funny thing that came to mind in one of my uh, classes for Greenville. Um, in explaining this idea that Christ had to be fully divine in our redemption, as well as equally as important as his humanity, I use the analogy of you see in the movies when someone is just getting pummeled like uh, being interrogated or something and they're getting punched in the face and there's somebody to hold them up to take the blows because without them they would just collapse mm-hmm. oh, yeah. and I use that analogy of talking about uh, Christ's divine nature and sustaining his humanity to take the full wrath of God on himself but Dr. Piper didn't like that analogy at all <laughs> <laughs> he said but then you got a second party involved and I like, well, I mean, but you get what I mean. <laughs> uh, all yeah. analogies fall right. uh, at some point. Um, yeah. They're just that. They're, they're superficial uh, mm-hmm. analogical connections, but they just, uh, nothing can fully grasp. Mm-hmm. Uh, question 39, uh, the opposite side of the coin here. Why was it requisite that the mediator should be man? It was requisite, and this, this gets to where we are now in, in the mm-hmm. Apostles' Creed. Mm-hmm. It was requisite that the mediator should be man that he might advance our nature. That's a very provocative statement. Uh, mm-hmm. Thought-provoking is mm-hmm. what I mean. Perform obedience to the law. Suffer and make intercession for us in our nature. Have a fellow feeling of our infirmities, that we might receive the adoption of sons and have comfort mm-hmm. and access with boldness unto the throne of grace. And then question 40 Uh, deals with both sides of the equations together. Why was it requisite that the mediator should be God and man in one person? And note here the distinction between nature and person. Divine nature, human nature, united together in one person. 
Answer, it was requisite the mediator who was to reconcile God and man should himself be both God and man, and this in one person, that the proper works of each nature might be accepted for God, of God for us and relied mm -hmm. on by us as the works of the whole person. I, I love the reality that what you see in the incarnation is a picture of the work of redemption in itself mm -hmm. in that mm -hmm. the divine nature and the human nature are brought together. Right. Um, yeah. And I'm not saying by that that Jesus had to be redeemed. He is the redeemer. What I'm saying is you see uh, in a microcosmic way a sort of a picture of what Jesus is going to do. And he's called the mediator, the one who is in between bringing two parties together. He's yeah. going to reconcile sinful man alienated from God by sin with the Father, the holy and living God. Mm -hmm. And so in this person, Jesus Christ, the mediator, we see the divine nature brought together with the human nature. Yeah. It's a beautiful, beautiful image. It is. I think in many respects. Yeah. It's, um, the, it's the communion bond. Yeah to the nth degree because mm -hmm. because Jesus is not merely human mm -hmm. he's also fully divine and mm -hmm. so you, the closeness of the fellowship and the bond between the humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ um, is as, as close as it could be mm -hmm. as close as it can be mm -hmm. um, and we we participate in that uh, in our union with Christ. Not that we too are made divine, divine. Mm -hmm. but we partake of the divine nature through right. him. Mm -hmm. so. and maybe that's part of what um, question 39, uh, the answer there means when it talks about advancing our nature, that yeah. provocative statement, right. which we don't have time to get into right yeah. now. But, yeah. no, and it right. is interesting to me that, you know, this statement of the Apostles' Creed, getting back to the Creed itself, um, the, the two sides of this statement, it, both of them are referring to Jesus Christ, the God-man, the mediator. Mm -hmm. But you see that that twofold side of it. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, mm -hmm. it was God divine, yeah, born side. of the Virgin Mary, the human the side. Human side. Mm -hmm. And so there's a real balance here, mm -hmm. um, theologically. Uh, as well as grammatically, yeah. so it's, it's rather striking. Yeah, the and and what you see in this statement gets worked out in greater detail um, in later creeds, like for instance the definition of Chalcedon. Um, you see uh, Orthodox Christology, the Orthodox doctrine of the Person of Christ and the Hypostatic Union, stated. Uh, for officially, really, for the first time there uh, in 451 A.D. in the definition of Chalcedon, and then, of course, the Athanasian Creed takes up the same the same exact issues and restates them. Um, and one thing that's wonderful about the Protestant uh, confessions of faith, uh, and particularly our confession of faith, the Westminster Confession, is it's taking those earlier creedal statements and kind of pulling them all together. Right. Um, um, we see in, for instance, uh, chapter 8 of the Confession of Faith on Christ the Mediator, uh, these ideas being brought together. Uh, section, or part, paragraph 2 says, The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, 
being very an eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father, did when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost. So there's exactly what the Apostles' Creed says here at this point. Mm -hmm. In the womb of the Virgin Mary, again, something <coughs> of her substance, so that two whole perfect and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. That's a wonderful, concise, you know, uh, standing on the shoulders of the giants who've come before them kind of statement um, on the, the incarnation. Mm-hmm. And all of that is really, <clears throat> I mean, th this short little s statement in the Apostles' Creed is pregnant with all of that, which will eventually come um, come to its fruition. No, no pun intended, right? No exactly, pun. exactly. Right. Right. No pun intended. <laughs> yeah, I, and um, it's very important for us, I think, to see as well that um, that the. Uh, the incarnation is is most necessary because of of what Christ had come to do. He, mm. he came to redeem fallen humanity, so he had to have that nature. He had to be one of us, mm -hmm. and yet in such a way that he could be a sinless substitute. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's probably the most important thing to to, to walk away from this portion of the creed. Uh, embracing and understanding um, you can get pretty theological and philosophical about these concepts but I think the big idea here is that he had to represent us but he had to be able to take our place on the cross so that he could um, make propitiation for our sins and that would only be possible if he himself were sinless so um, you know part of this I think goes back to the issue of the sinlessness uh, comes from his divinity um, but even in his humanity he's protected from the sinful nature mm -hmm. and and I think it's a reminder to us that even though we can in one sense talk about being naturally sinful that we're, we're conceived in sin we're born in sin God did not create man sinful. Mm -hmm. And so sin is not of the essence of what it means to be truly human. Right. Um, it's a perversion of what it means to be truly exactly, human. Exactly, exactly. And, and so when Jesus is born, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, the God-man, and he's without sin, without a sinful nature, um, that doesn't make him somehow less human. If right. anything, it makes him... More human. More human. True, right. true human. True human. What, what we were in Adam prior to the fall. Right. And what we are destined to be in Christ when redemption reaches its consummation. Right. Um, so he, he can truly represent us and take our place on the mm -hmm. cross of, of Calvary. Um, the Virgin Mary. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Born of the Virgin Mary. Um uh, during the fundamentalist controversies uh, uh, in, in the early 1900s, particularly, um, there was a, a great emphasis laid upon 
the fact that Mary had never known a man and how important it was to 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 point that out just just sort of wrapping this, this particular podcast up do you, do you do you guys think that that's important and if so why just in simple terms oh absolutely uh, it's I, I think it's important to affirm the virginity of Mary um, uh, prior to and during the conception of Christ, or with respect to, I should say, the conception uh, of the Son of God, I don't think it's important to affirm the perpetual virginity of Mary. I reject that. Mm-hmm. I think Jesus had brothers and sisters that yep. came from Joseph and Mary. Yep. I think the text is pretty clear about that. Um, but uh, but her virginity prior to Jesus' conception, or with respect to Jesus' uh, conception, is ex- extremely important. It's uh, It's a fundamental of the faith. Um, and you know, as we were talking before about before the uh, before recording the podcast, um, <clears throat> what you have here uh, essentially is um, uh, with Mary's virginity, um, you you have a, a, a disconnect uh, when it comes to the imputation of guilt from Adam. Jesus is a son of Adam in the sense that he has the, the human nature. Right. Um, but he is not a son of Adam in the sense that he has a human father um, uh, and, and is therefore covenantally included in the fall of Adam. Mm-hmm. So the guilt of Adam is not... Um, the guilt of Adam is not... Um, uh, Imputed uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ in any sense, um, he does not receive a a, um, a a corrupted human nature. He's not polluted by original sin. He's originally righteous. He's in every way a second Adam, as or the last Adam, as Paul uh, calls him and describes him in First Corinthians fifteen and Romans five. Um, and, and think about that. I mean, Adam, you know, to, to refer to Christ as an Adam is to refer to him as one who, like Adam, is brought forth into the creation, um, or, or should say it this way, is brought forth uh, as uh, an originally righteous creation of God. Um, you know, and you, you see, I think you see the Apostle John making these kinds of connections uh, in his prologue. And you see it also in Matthew and Luke when, when the angel describes the way that the conception will happen. And it's here in the, the Apostles' Creed as well. Um, there are allusions back to the, the creation account, and particularly to Genesis chapters 1, or pardon me, Genesis chapter 1 and verses uh, 1 through 2 where you see the Father uh, speaking from heaven, the Spirit brooding over the waters, and life and light coming forth into into the creation. So you have the old creation kind of paradigm, which was an historical event, not denying any of that at all. I'm a young earth, six-day creation guy. Um, uh, But all of that old creation is typological for the bringing forth of the new creation, through the Messiah, and so you see the same kind of thing happening, um, happening with Jesus' incarnation, 
the womb of the Virgin Mary is like the waters that the Spirit hovers over, and the Spirit brings forth life and light um, uh, out of the waters of Mary's womb, and, and that life and light is the life and light of the world. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who is uh, the, the, the new creation and will bring forth, uh, will bring forth and consummate um, the new creation uh, through his work of redemption. Mm. So, um, so you see, I think all of that there, Jesus is the second Adam. He's born with, without original sin. Uh, in fact, he's born originally righteous, like Adam was after his creation. Um, and I think there's also a connection here, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Who else in the history of the world was, could it be said of them, was in some sense conceived maybe by the Holy Spirit. And the only person we could point to is Adam. Adam himself. Yeah. Adam is uh, formed, his body's formed from the dust of the ground, and then God breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. What is that? Right. That's the Holy Spirit. Right. So, again, Jesus is the second Adam, um, and his humanity is brought forth as a new creation, as a creation that's unstained uh, by the world. And, and through that created humanity uh, in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and when I say created, I don't mean that every other human being is not created, but, but this is a special kind of, of new creation. Uh, through that created humanity, again, he and his work of redemption, he ushers forth, uh, he ushers forth the consummate new creation, hmm. which for now is, is every... Every believer, every every church member, um, you know, has been made a part of the new creation, um, and uh, at his second coming, all things will be made new. Hmm. So, well, and I think that's a good point to end on. Uh, this is a a deep subject when we talk about the issues of hypostatic union, the incarnation, and we do have to acknowledge a certain limit to our understanding. But what we've talked about here. Uh, runs the, the gamut of basic Christian orthodoxy. And it's a great comfort to know that Christ uh, took upon himself uh, our human nature, that he might represent us and be our redeemer. And that's the real heart of this. So with that, we're going to bring this uh, session of our podcast to an end. We're thankful that you joined us, and we pray that God's blessings would rest upon you. Please come back again next time as we continue to make our way to this wonderful creed of the Christian Church. Mm -hmm.